approaching the end of the book of Hebrews. Um, we'll have this sermon today, and then we'll have one next week, and then we will be done. And so as we do that, I thought we'd just take a minute to try and remember some of the blessings that, that we have through Jesus according to the book of Hebrews, okay? Because this has been kind of one of the main themes of this book has been this is who Jesus is, and these are the blessings that we receive through him. And so I'm just going to recap what a few of those are. All right, so we've learned that Jesus is in every way like us, and that because of that, he's able to help us when we are tempted. We've learned that Jesus is our great and perfect high priest. And because of this, we can approach God's throne with confidence. Through Christ, we've been guaranteed a better covenant. We've been cleansed through the power of the blood of Christ. Through Christ, we can draw near to God. And because of Christ, we no longer have to repeat the Old Testament sacrifices over and over again because Jesus himself was the ultimate sacrifice for sin. All right, so we've learned all these benefits, but in in addition to that, uh, especially over the last few weeks, we've learned about all those who have gone before us, who despite some failings, um, have lived their lives in faith. And because of that, we have a great cloud of witnesses that's cheering us on, that's encouraging us to run the race. And so now we're approaching the conclusion of the book, as I said. And the author is becoming increasingly concerned about how all these things up here are going to impact our lives. He's becoming very concerned about the very practical application. Now, that's not to say that there hasn't been practical application so far. Okay, there has, especially in the idea uh, that we need to take our faith seriously. Um, This is something Kelly really emphasized last week. Um, This idea that we need to take our faith seriously and that we need to seriously consider what is true without simply accepting what the world says to us. Um, We've talked many times about how the original audience of this book was likely going through some sort of faith crisis. And so the author lists all these things, all these benefits from Jesus, all these people that have gone in faith before to encourage them and to encourage us to keep up with the faith. All right, so I think, you know, that point has been pretty firmly established by this point, hopefully. Um, And so the author goes on and he adds one more very important piece of practical application. And that's this. It's that not only should all these things result in faith, but that faith will actually make itself evident when we live holy lives. Next week, in chapter 13, the author is going to get really practical with that, and he's going to describe for us exactly what that holy life looks like. Um, But first, here in in chapter 12, um, he's going to show us why we must live these holy lives. And so we're going to read here um, from the second half of Hebrews chapter 12. You can turn there if you'd like. 
Um, and there's several images throughout this passage that the author's going to use, but I'm going to start with this image that he uses of two mountains. And so starting in verse 18, the author, uh, the author writes about the first of these mountains. He says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. And so this first mountain was a physical mountain. In fact, it was a historic mountain. We can look back to the book of Exodus and we can read about how the Israelites were freed from their slavery in Egypt, how they went through the Red Sea, how all of Pharaoh's army was destroyed in that Red Sea, and then the Israelites came to Mount Sinai. And that's the mountain that's being described here. It's the mountain where God was and where God imparted to the Israelites his laws, where he gave them the tablets with the Ten Commandments. And you'll notice from the author's description here that this mountain was primarily characterized by fear. This was the place where God was, and it was so terrifying that even Moses, Moses who led these Israelites, Moses who talked to God, looked at this mountain and said, I am trembling with fear. Now, this is the first mountain, and the author makes it pretty clear that this is not the mountain that we come toward. Instead, we come to another mountain, which he describes this way. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so here we have the second mountain, which is no longer a physical mountain. Instead, it is a spiritual or a heavenly mountain. And this mountain is no longer characterized primarily by fear. Instead, it actually reminds us of earlier in the book of Hebrews when we were told that we can approach God's throne with confidence. And this mountain is characterized by joyful assembly. Joy taking the place of fear. And in particular, I think the author actually uses this mountain to remind us of many of the blessings that we talked about just a minute ago, the blessings that come from Jesus. Okay, we see that in the confidence that is here. We also see that at the end when he talks about the blood of Jesus, which is a redeeming blood, unlike the blood of Abel, which was a blood that called out for vengeance. All right, so I'm going to suggest that the author is using these two mountains to make two main points about how we should live. 
And the first is this. It's that we should live holy lives as a joyful response to the blessings that God has given us. Okay? I've already touched on this um, several times here this morning. Um, But the point here is that it's important to remember the blessings that God has given us and that these things give us the strength that we need to live lives that are obedient to God. But he is making another point here as well. The image of the two mountains is used to show us that we should live our lives with a holy fear and an awe of God. All right? The writer did remind us of that first mountain for a reason. While it is true that we now approach God's throne with confidence and with joy, it's still the same mighty and powerful God that we're approaching. And the Hebrew author actually argues that as terrifying as it was for the Israelites, if they did not obey God, it should be even more terrifying for us to think about disobeying him precisely because we have received so many more blessings. Their messenger, after all, was only Moses, a mere man. Our messenger is Jesus, who is is God himself. You know, the author kind of makes this point, uh, well, he does make this point at at the very end of the chapter. Um, verse 29, he describes God as a consuming fire. And you know, my initial reaction to reading those words um, was to take that in a pretty positive way. Um, I thought of that fire as something that benefits us. Um, perhaps because fire is often associated, even in the, in the Bible, um, with good passions or with the Holy Spirit. And we see that maybe in our worship songs. We'll sing songs like, like Consuming Fire, Fan into Flame, A Passion for Your Name. Or we'll sing Light the Fire in My Soul, Fan the Flame and Make It Whole. But this image of fire is different. This image of fire should actually bring to mind something much more terrifying. It's probably better thought uh, in terms of, of a large, out-of-control forest fire. A fire that destroys everything in its path. A fire that is deadly, even. A fire that is something to be feared. And one of the reasons we can think of the fire this way is because we just have to look and we can see that the author here is actually quoting back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 where God describes himself as this consuming fire. And if you go and if you read that chapter, you'll see that that chapter is all about God's justice, all about God's righteous anger and God's judgment. So there's two reasons presented here why we should obey God and why we should live holy lives. And if I had to sum those up, I would do it as the author does, in verse 28. I would say this. I would say, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. 
and so worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe. And so we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And this is one of the many blessings that we have from God. And so we should be thankful and we should worship God by living holy lives. But we also serve a God who deserves our reverence and awe. And that word reverence, if, if you've got another translation other than the NIV, you might see that it can also be translated as holy fear. And so this reverence, this awe, this holy fear lead us to live holy lives. The author is reminding us of the many blessings that we have through Jesus Christ. We have received so much, so freely from God, and we shouldn't just take it for granted. We must make every effort to be holy. It's quite likely that the original audience here was being tempted to turn away, to take a break from Jesus. And this passage comes as a warning against that way of thinking. You see, we have received something even greater than those before us, and as a result, we also need to take it that much more seriously. Earlier in the passage, the author makes the same point, um, but in the opposite way, by telling us what not to do. And in particular, he tells us not to be like Esau. You see, the author realizes that it can be tempting at times to just give up on your faith, to say, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm going to put myself, I'm going to put my own desires first, and I'm going to forget about this God thing, about this church stuff, because it takes too much of my own time. I'm going to sleep in on Sunday mornings because I haven't slept in on, in, in a while. Um, I'm going to stay home and watch the football game on Thursday night rather than go to my life group. And yet this is exactly what the Hebrew writer is warning us not to do. Because if we do this, we are like Esau. And if you remember the story of Esau, Esau and his brother Jacob were the sons of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And it was to Abraham and to Isaac that God had promised that he would make their descendants into a great nation. And Esau, as Isaac's firstborn son, uh, he stood to be the primary benefactor of that promise. And yet, one day, he returned home from a hunting trip, and he was hungry. And in that moment, he agreed to trade his birthright for a bowl of stew. And in doing so, he allowed his immediate desires to become more important than the promise that came from God. All right, so... The next question that needs to be asked is, if we're to live holy lives, what does it mean to be holy? Uh, the author gives us a few clues throughout the chapter. Uh, for example, he says, we should live at peace with everyone. He says, don't be bitter, in verse 15. 
Verse 16, he says, don't be sexually immoral. Verse 28, he tells us to be thankful. And perhaps most importantly, in verse 25, he says to be obedient. And we know that there are many places throughout the Bible that we could look to figure out what that obedience looks like. We could turn to the Sermon in the Mount, on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, and we could hear Jesus describe there what a holy life looks like. We could turn to 1 John, and we could read about how loving and caring for our brothers and our sisters is what obedience is. We could read in James about taking care of orphans and widows in their distress. And of course, the author of Hebrews himself in chapter 13 is going to go much more in depth about the specifics of what this holiness looks like. But the point I want to make this morning um, is is that each of us has different sins that we struggle with. And there's going to be different things that each person needs to overcome if they're going to be obedient to God and if they're going to live holy lives. Now, it's important to remember that this holiness is a direction. You see, we all know that we're sinners. I certainly know that I'm a sinner. But we've seen throughout Hebrews how God accepts us as sinners and how he offers us grace. And this is why it's so important, for example, that that Jesus is the high priest who has experienced what it means to be human and therefore can represent us before God. It's why it's so important that Jesus is this ultimate sacrifice and that he covers all of our sins. And so throughout the book, we've seen that God loves us, that God accepts us, and that he calls us his children despite all of the wrong things that we do. And yet, at the same time, here we are reminded that we must never let these things become an excuse for doing wrong. Because our God is a mighty and a powerful God. He's a God who deserves our awe and our reverence and a healthy, holy sense of fear. He is a God who is worthy of our obedience. And so this is my question for you today. What do you need to do to live a life that is more obedient to God? What sin are you holding on to that you need to stop pretending is unimportant? And what are you going to do today to make every effort to live at peace with everyone and to be holy. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just want to come before you and thank you for the love that you have for us. Thank you that you're a God that accepts us no matter what. Even in our sin, even with all our faults, You love us and you call us your children. And yet, God, we also want to remember that that you are a powerful God, that you're a great God, that you're a God that could create this world and this universe, Um, and that, that you're a God that when the Israelites came into your presence, that they trembled with fear. 
And God, I just pray that you would help us to have that awe and that reverence for you as well. Not that our relationship with you would be dominated by fear, that we would still be your children, but that we would also live our lives as holy lives, lives that would be pleasing to you. And we pray that we would be able to do that through the strength that you give us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.